Your son walks out the door. You have this feeling you'll never see him again. A week goes by and you hear nothing. So, you plead with local police for help. They tell you you're basically on your own, which forces you to search for him yourself. Three months goes by. But what happens when you find him? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us, we're crossing the line. So Everett, today is sort of a hybrid episode, part missing person, part old school reportage, and part victim's family story. It's an opportunity for a family of a victim to speak out, and in this case, loud and clear. I get a lot of calls and messages from people looking for help, and today's case is one that came to me via an email by a woman from Pawtucket, Rhode Island named Melissa Budnick. I was wondering if you would be interested in bringing attention in some way to the murder of my friend's son, age 27, who went missing in April 2020. The police departments from both Pawtucket and Providence did a lukewarm job of looking for him. The man's mother would not give up. All right, Phelps, so what are the facts that we know about the case so far? There's really no documentation, and we'll find out why later, but all of this is by reporting that I did with the family. So it's like 10.44 p.m. on April 17, 2020. 27-year-old John Cosme, who had issues with drugs and being in trouble, left his mother's house. And to better understand this case, I want to go right to an interview I did with John Cosme's family recently and allow them the space to tell their own story. Here's Anna, John's mother, talking about John and the last time she saw him. I say that every mom out there tell you how much you love him. Because if I know that day there was a be it'll be the last day I would hook him more. The seventeenth of April, that was the last time I saw my son and I asked in the kitchen, Are you hungry? And he said to me, No. Just give me ten dollars. Took a shower, put his clothes on. Somebody was waiting for him outside. And it bothers me really hard. That I couldn't give him a hug. That bothers me for the rest of my life. That I didn't say how much I love him. I hope he knows. Anna knew that something was amiss with John when several days went by and she didn't hear from him. I asked about his routines. Was he prone to disappearing and returning? Probably two or three years before he passed, he was disappearing me. Like he stayed for a while in my house and then he disappeared for three, five days, come back, took a shower. But I always know that he's going to come back. That's what I thought. Like, I was waiting for that. And I, when he don't, uh, most of the time he check up on me. Like, he calls me. Oh, what are you doing, Ana? Um, oh, he calls me Peralta by my last name. And what are you doing, Peralta? No, nothing. What are you doing, John? He says, I'm, I'm okay. Um, I want to come over and take a shower. I say, okay. That's all he does, back and forth. So what makes you think that? He's not coming back this time. It was a weird feeling because most of the time he he come home by the three or four days, five days. I keep thinking something is wrong. I keep calling people, everybody that I know, every phone that he called me from because he always check on me. It's weird because he always said to me, I want you to die before me because I'm not going to be able to handle the pain 
And at that point, like about six days, they haven't heard from him. I called jails. I told my daughter, can you please call if he's in prison? And everybody don't give me any answers. And then I get really worried. And, and it was feeling like a really weird feeling that I never had when he disappeared. It was a weird feeling. I know something was wrong with him. After one week, we went to the police station and um, it was hard because they didn't want to get out. I pick up the phone and they told me, what do you want? I said, can you please come down, send somebody out because something wrong with my son. Can you please do a, a report? So missing reports. So they start telling me, no, he, he might be somewhere. He's fine. He's an adult. So I said, but it's, it's like a week. So he, he, he will come back. So that's what they said. Nothing else. After that first week, the hope the family had of finding John alive diminished sharply. And I can relate to this feeling. I think instinctively, we all know when something isn't right. Am I right, Everett? In your gut, you know. You know. Your gut feeling. Yeah. For Anna and John's siblings, they did what anyone would do. They called the police again. They went down to the Pawtucket PD. Melissa, the woman who wrote to me, got involved. She made a call to the police as well. They told her they cannot do anything and, according to her, hung up the phone on her. They went down to the PD and one of the highest ranking officers on the force, quote, refused to even take a report. Wow. Why wouldn't the police department even attempt to help her? Like, is that normal when an adult goes missing? Well, I'll say this. A majority of adults who go missing want to be missing. The dynamic here is different. The family is saying this is out of the norm for John. It makes me think, were they not interested because of his past or even worse, because he was a person of color? Well, I don't want to accuse the cops of racism, but I personally think it's more of law enforcement viewing the marginalized differently than the white person with blue eyes, blonde hair from suburbia. I just want to point out facts. And we have a minority family pleading for help and not being heard, according to them. John was in and out of jail. He was a known drug user and hung around with a rough crowd in town in the seedy areas. So it's more like he's missing, screw him. He's created this life for himself. And for me, as someone who's been in recovery for 26 years now, if only we viewed addiction as a disease. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be like a hint here of prioritizing who they want to search for and exactly. personalizing the cases, right? What I mean is they did bring their own feelings and thoughts into this by presumably immediately judging the type of person John was, you know, without really getting to know him or know a thing about him instead of just simply helping his family. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about public servants here. Someone comes to you for help, you look into it and you try to help them. What it is is It's implicit bias, which is an automatic association some people make between groups of people and stereotypes about those groups, even a type of person, who they are, what they do, choices they make, where they're from, sex workers, for example. It's bias. It influences their response to a situation, and it shouldn't. And you see it all the time, like with reading about cases, you know, like if a woman walks up to a police station counter and wants to make a report... Let's say she's black and poor, you know, her accusation and or report is judged on that. It's sad, but true. Like when a sex worker, especially 
a BIPOC sex worker is killed, they're known as the, quote, less dead because their lives are just seen to have less value because they perhaps live in a more transient or high-risk lifestyle. You hit it on the head there with the high-risk lifestyle. You're judged on that, and you shouldn't be. If you're in trouble, you're in trouble. The law is the law. They're there to help you. After the family realized they were on their own, they began to picket in front of the Pawtucket PD and the Providence PD, who got involved after learning that the last place John was seen was in Providence. Anna, John's mother, his siblings and friends took shifts and held up signs waving at police as they drove by. I mean, let me just read a couple of those signs that Anna and family members and friends were holding up. Providence Police Department, do your job and find my son's killer with John's picture on it. Justice for John. I mean, they were just doing what they had to do, right? It just feels like they were at the last resort. They were just... Their wits end. It's like you can't just sit at home and just say, just got to do something. And so I feel so bad because you could just sense the desperation that they had to get to that point. Did they get any of the police officers' attention by doing that? There is one detective who keeps coming up in my conversation with the family. He seems to be interested in at least being a liaison between the family and information. But again, nothing is happening. Mm. They are not actively investigating, according to the family. John is an adult. He's missing. That's that. Here's part of my interview again. John's sister, Erica, explains this part of the case. He was the head of the case when we, when they finally decided to actually start looking. We told him about the wooded area, and he said, we'll, we'll send a search party. They came here and took one of John's pillowcases or, so they can get his scent. That's a big wooded area. We searched it, and they weren't even there half hour. There's a river that's maybe two feet, not even a foot deep. I asked them to check the river. They never went in the river. And I have messages between me and that detective texting back and forth and said, why haven't you checked the river? On those picket signs Anna and the others held up, along with flyers they made and posted everywhere, there was a phone number to call with tips or information. The family's phone number, not police. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So they just gave up all hope on the police helping them. And they were just, what, going to just take it into their own hands? Yeah, I mean, according to them, you know, the police are doing zero. And I want to point out that the Providence police were sort of involved, but were not very active on the case. John was last seen in North Providence off Vandy Water Street in a wooded area known for drug use and homeless living in tents. It's along the West River. This is near Branch Avenue and Route 146. And those locations become very important in this story. So let's listen to Erica again, John's sister, who would put her kids in the car spend full days driving around, talking to known drug users and criminals, trying to find out where her brother is. I mean, she would literally run down every tip that came in. So Erica receives this video. It's obvious that John is flailing and in need of immediate help. It's a video of John. He's screaming in pain and like just tumbling around the ground. And it was I know what day it was because it was the only day it snowed in April. So we thought it was weird because I'm like, oh, it's snowing in April. Wow. That was April 21st, I think it was. And that was the last time that somebody claimed that they saw John. And the people who recorded the video, we questioned them ourselves. They were down there. 
they said, oh, that we called 911 that day because we didn't know what was going on with John. We think he was on some kind of drug that was making him tumble around the ground like that. But he wasn't wearing shoes. It was snowing. He was just tumbling around a tree. And in the background, you could see the big blue graffiti. And that's how we found that spot. Right behind him was the river, which is why I sent that video to the detective. And I said, why haven't you searched the river? He could have tumbled or somebody could have pushed him into that water and we wouldn't even know about it. We've seen the video and it's clear the guy shooting this video is mocking John, even calling him, quote, a fucking asshole on the video. John, you want you need help, bro? All day, just like this. Fucking asshole. Jesus, that's awful. I mean, could we speculate that maybe he was overdosing? We could speculate, but we do not know for sure, right? He could be having a seizure. I mean, the fact of the matter is we don't know. So John's on the ground, no shoes or socks. There's snow around him. He's not really near the water. As best I can see, it's about 15 feet away. It may be more. It's very hard to tell from the video. So Erica gave police the person's name who sent the video. Some guy and his girlfriend. In fact, the girl was John's ex-girlfriend. Oh, no. Yeah. Twist. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from the family and the unbelievable, unbelievable results in this case. So what ended up happening next after they got that awful video of him? Well, Erica noticed some familiar graffiti in the video and was able to pinpoint exactly where John was. And the family went to the place and found where John was having that seizure in the video. Wow. Yeah. Listen to Erica talk more about it to me. You went there first and you searched around. And what did you find? His shoe. One of his sneakers that we gave him as a gift. And it was only one shoe. And that was the shoes he was wearing when he left the house the last time my mom saw him. So we went searching there because we thought he was going to be, there's tents down there. People live down there. So we went down there, looked through all the tents, and there's just trash everywhere. And we find one of his shoes. And then that's when finally the police decided to go down there because we told them we went down there ourselves. And that's when they um, searched for five minutes, left. They would not go in the water, even though I sent them that video where you could see the water in the background. And I'm telling them, why haven't you checked the water? We're getting tips from people saying that he was last seen down there. The people who recorded the video are claiming that that's the last time they saw him, too. They didn't even get questioned. They said they got questioned for maybe 20 minutes, and then they let him go. The police let them go. So the people who recorded the video, what did they do? I mean, They're did they just... friends of his, supposedly. They They're just not, left him there? Yes. And they said they called 911. So they said they called 911 and they left him there. They yep. didn't want to get involved? Exactly. Or? So if somebody, if that's your friend and you see that, that your friend is in distress, my thing is why wouldn't you wait for the ambulance to get there and then go? Because if this is a place that's known for people who, who do this, then the ambulance is not going to sit there and accuse you. They're going to worry about saving his life. But they said they left. This is what gets me. Why would you leave? They, they claim they left and they called 911, but they never waited for the ambulance to come. So let me get this straight. The guy was having a seizure or he was overdosing and they left him there in distress on the ground. The question becomes, did they actually call 911 and actually leave the scene right away? Can't we find out if they called 911? There's 
records of that, right? There should be a record. There should be a recording of it. I couldn't get my hands on it. The family couldn't get their hands on it. What about the detective? What did he find? Well, he supposedly confirmed to the family, not to me, Mm -hmm. because he wouldn't answer my emails or my texts or phone calls, that those people did call 911. So I have no reason to believe he would lie about something like that. Detective said he heard the call. He said that someone did call, but that the responders never found anyone there. They didn't find a body. So I find that hard to believe, too. So wait, so is it possible that somebody did something with John's body, you think? Well, the drug world is a dangerous cutthroat game. Well, what was the area like where he was found? You've seen some of the videos. I've seen all the videos. We're we're talking Mm -hmm. about like under a bridge type of stuff with homeless and drug addicts and makeshift tents out of burlap and tarps and anything that somebody can find. So Right. Fires to keep warm. Yes. Yeah. You know, why someone would see a friend of theirs in distress seizing and not wait for paramedics is is not something you, me, and our listeners can fathom. But knowing right. this world of drug addicts very well, I could definitely see it happening. Ugh. So let's for a moment talk about John Cosme as a person. Absolutely. You've given me a lot of material to read through. And so from what I've researched, it seems like he loved kids. He had three boys. The first was when he was 15. And Erica, his sister, says that John and his girlfriend, without telling anyone, had planned it. He wanted a family. He was funny and everyone loved to be around him. He was also a gifted artist who painted and drew pictures. And his family seemed to love him immensely, despite any issues that he was having. They cared a lot for him, it seems. And they clearly miss him a lot. John was a young doting father, but he had the devil on his back. He had substance abuse issues, a disease, addiction. His mother, Anna, she talked about this, about his drug use. And, you know, she also talked about John being a really good man who struggled with addiction. And I might want to point out here, a victim is a victim, period. Doesn't matter who they are, what they did, what choices they've made in life. A victim doesn't have to explain his or herself. It's a human being, regardless. Right, right. They, you know, you don't have to explain your life if you're a victim. You don't have to make excuses for your life. You don't have to answer for it. You're a victim, period. So the family just beyond themselves at this point, right? Uh, Completely uh, frustrated, I'm assuming. I mean, wouldn't anybody be? Uh, I've learned you can turn pain into power or you can allow it to cripple you. And here we see they decide on the former. Uh, Throughout the next three months, the family searches doggedly. Every call, every tip, every possible sighting, they're on it. That one detective, he is in touch with them sporadically, but he gives them no information at all, as far as I'm told. On May 28th, 2020, Pawtucket police put out a press release saying that they are, quote, still actively searching for John Cosme, end quote. Remember, Hmm. police are doing close to nothing to search for John, according to the family. They basically told them they are on their own. How are we so sure that police are actually doing nothing? It's an active case, so we know that they're not going to share all the facts with the family. So is it accurate to say that they're doing nothing, or is it just because there's little communication with the family? So that's what they're assuming. 
the family is giving them all these tips and the family's following up themselves. The family later on wants all the reports and they get nothing. A family friend told them they need to get waders, you know, rubber hip boots and begin looking in the river where Erica noticed the graffiti and where John was last seen. And so that's what they did. They went out there and with boots on began walking the river. So they called in the Pawtucket police first before going into the water. For some reason, the police just refused to look in the river, as far as they say. They did a cursory search of the area. Erica later tells the media that, quote, they probably thought he was getting high somewhere, end quote. So they assumed John was off on a binge, according to the family, and would eventually show up in the morgue or at home. We have an issue in this country prioritizing people who we care about more. It's sickening, really. And if we don't acknowledge this and talk about it, it will never change. So the cops are out at the river now. How long were they there? Like, where did they search? Let's go back to that conversation I had with Anna, Melissa, and John's sister, Erica. It was around June. You know, we were starting to really lose hope that we were going to find him at that point. Because we started in April and we were still hanging out signs and standing in front of the police station. We got groups of people to stand with us. Nothing was happening. We weren't getting any more tips besides that he was in somebody's house and that they were doing this to him. Just random tips, but nothing would stick. So then a friend of his ex-girlfriend, her father, his ex-girlfriend's father, the mother of his children's father, he kept insisting, I think John never left those woods. We should go back and check again. And my mom's like, yeah, let's check. You know, let's, he said, let's check the water. He said, I have waiters. So we can walk in the water and see if we can find him. Wow. So John's mother gets in the water herself after the police refuse to help her. Exactly. Anna and Jacob, John's brother, and that family friend went down to the water and began searching. Here's what Jacob tells me about what happened next. Well, I was the uh, second to go because since there was about two tunnels, basically, there was one that was that was barely in the water, and my mom said, go to that one, because he said he found something. He said he found like, a body. He, he wasn't sure if it was a mannequin or a body, because it could have been either one of those things. And I go to search it. Well, I walk in there with the, uh, what do you call the waders. waders? The waders, but mine were the ones you slip all the way up to your, um, up your to thighs. You. But the water was getting so deep, the water was getting, was getting it, was, it, was, it was getting inside of the uh, waders, waders. And, um, yeah, it was just going all in my, my legs, my feet, and I get closer and I see it and I have like a uh, lantern. I'm like, wait, is this a body? I don't know. And he's like, it's probably a body. Like, yeah, I think it's a body. And then we, we all scream out, guys, we think it's a body. And then my mom was crying and screaming. And then we, he, the guy comes out, gets her. her leg. This next part of the interview is hard to listen to. Anna went into the water herself, walked down into that tunnel. I was, I was going crazy because at that time I, have the feeling my heart was just like, it's, that is my son. So I don't even know how I get there so fast. I, I don't know if you have winds and I don't know mm-hmm. what it was, but it was, I went there fast. I put the, the, the thing on and went there. So when with my niece, uh, she didn't want to leave me alone. So she was holding my arm and we walked through the water and I found John, as soon as I saw his legs and he, I, I saw the feet, I said, that is my son. He, he's, he, he's, he, this is my son. 
So I started searching for, for his head. I couldn't find anything. I kept looking at him. I wanted to hold him. I don't want to, I don't want to let it go. And he was, um, part of his leg was gone. Um, he was like, I know there was him because his feet was intact and um, the body was in like defense position. Like somebody was hitting him and he was like that. And you can see the, the some of the tattoo that he had, not all of them. And um, his leg was cut in oh, and something looked like a metal piece underneath of his right legs. And it was very hard to see him that way and I could look him and see and I could crying and say what why don't I can see his head it's not there it was hard to see your child I was happy and I don't even know how um, I keep holding on and I fell in the water and all I say is thank you Jesus thank you all I say thank you because he came back to me, even if he's, he was dead, I asked God to bring him back. And he, and he did. It took them all of 20 minutes in the water to find him. I'm sorry, but law enforcement could have saved this woman from the pain of finding her own son and that experience that she will never, ever get out of her system. She'll take it to the grave. We can't forget public servants work for us. And I can't help but think if only law enforcement would have listened to this family and searched that water. I mean, they were out there. What happened then once the family found his body? What did the police do? It kind of gets worse for the family, I think, right here, because the police tried to take the credit. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Melissa, the woman who initially wrote to me said, quote, but this mom went on the news to inform the public that she found her son and the police refused to continue searching for him. The police departments refused to make a comment once the newscast aired, Melissa wrote to me. After the break, let's get into the reports, the toxicology, the autopsy, and see if we can determine what happened to John Cosme. Because in that first email from Melissa I received, she tells me John Cosme was murdered. It's two months before the coroner checks in and gives a report of John's autopsy. The family waits and waits and waits. So they tell me they have to keep calling and calling. And finally, they are told the autopsy is ready and they can come down and they can purchase the report. Since when is that a thing? They actually have to pay to find out what happened to their own family member? That's what they tell me. I know I pay for the stuff, of course, but I'm not a family member. If I was a family member, I'd expect to get a copy of it for free. So then they had to buy it. Yeah, they bought it. They gave it to me. And so what does it say happened to John Cosme? Well, let's listen. In my opinion, I think that he was killed. The way they, that I saw his body, it was like the fence, like somebody was hitting him or something. I don't know. In my opinion, my son didn't die of an overdose. So you think somebody, he got into a scuffle or whatever, somebody killed him and just dumped him in the river? 
That's what my thinking is. And what do you think? I think that the two people, which is a, it's a, the two people who recorded the video of him, I think they're the ones that pushed him in the water. I think that they got scared. They thought he was dead because of the way he was in distress. And they pushed him in the water and tried to hide his body. So it's like maybe they were doing drugs with him. Yeah, they, that's what they were known for doing. They were never his friends. Because um, that girl, John had dated her first. And that guy that was with her was her current boyfriend. So it's not like he was his best friend. He's not going to look out for him. They were laughing at him when he was in distress. I asked Anna for a few final thoughts about her son. And as gut-wrenching, real, and hard to hear as this is, we need to hear it. Hate me. A lot of headaches. Hmm. But I go from with all my health. I would have changed everything. I would have took a place. That's all I say when I found his body. I say, come, take my body. Just take. All I say, I say thank you, but I say, God, I would have changed. I would have switched place. I'm 54. He's only 27. What do you think happened, Phelps? It's a tough case, Everett. The autopsy report is inconclusive. No cause or no manner of death. The levels of drugs in his system, heroin and fentanyl, were not enough to kill him, but his body was in the water for three months, so it's hard to tell. And that's according to specialists I had look at this autopsy report, not me. What do you mean? Does that mean like the longer your body is in the water, the more likely the substances in your bloodstream can dilute over time? It's not like, you know, you have a glass of Kool-Aid and then you pour that into a bigger jar and add water to it. and it, it That's not how that happens. What it means is it's it's inconclusive, meaning his body was in the water for three months. So you can't depend on the tests because of the amount of time that the body itself was in the water. I mean, that's really what we're getting at here. The one thing they could tell was there was no water found in his lungs, so he did not drown. So he was dead before being in the water. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. It still doesn't answer the question of how he got into the water, though. You know, right. There was no way he stumbled into the water, rolled in the water, or passed out right. in the water. That's clear right. from the video. What if he had maybe died near the water, around that area, and the area might have flooded and picked up his body and brought it into the water? Could that have been an option? I thought of that, Ev, and I'm told the river would not flood into the area where John was in that video. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, final thoughts on this. What do you think? There's not enough information to go off of. Exactly. Drugs or no drugs, it's... There's just not enough information. and Do you understand why the family's frustrated? Because there's not enough information? They want more information. I can understand why they're frustrated, but in a sense, like, not to defend the police, but now hearing and seeing that there really is no information to go off of, it's one of those sad cases where the family just might not ever have an answer because it's just a mystery of what happened, right? For all we know, it could have been self-induced. It could have been just a complete accident with no one involved. I disagree in some respects. Okay, what do you think happened? If his body was found earlier, then we'd have an answer, right? So I think somebody knows what happened to John Cosme. 
and they're afraid to come forward with that information. That's what I think. Well, I think it's the people who took the video. I definitely think they know what happened to John Cosme. If I had to answer the question, what happened to him? If I had to answer it, I'd say he died and somebody put him in the water. Right. But we just don't know the cause of death, which is frustrating enough for the family. I don't think he was murdered. Was there negligence? Absolutely. I think there was negligence. Now, the other separate issue is the cops. I don't want to sound like I'm attacking cops. What I'm doing here is allowing this family to speak because they really haven't had a voice. Did John's family ever try to go reach out to the people who took the video? They can get a hold of them right now. Anna talks about it in the interview. The only thing I want to say about is that I want justice, and that's why I reach out to you um, so you can put that. John, what happened to John out there so people can see what I'm going through and they can find these people that, you know, put my son there. And justice. what it, justice to you would be finding the people who did this to your son. Yeah. And uh, the police, just I just wanted to talk about them. Like, they didn't do absolutely nothing. They didn't help me at all. Why do you think they didn't help you? Because of who he was. Of who he was. Yeah, exactly. He was not a rich man. He didn't have nothing. He don't have any... You know, I found him and they took the credit. And it bothers me that they say that, well, we found him. No, you didn't. You wish me luck. Every time I was there, they say, well, bye. Good afternoon, good morning. Whatever time I was, because I always was there. Begging. I shouldn't be begging. I pick taxes. I work. Why should I be begging for help? to find my son. I asked Melissa why she reached out to me in the first place. Just the injustice of it all. You know, this is a a real life thing that happened that would get swept under the rug. Have Had it not been for someone, you know, that like you that puts these things out there to show people that this really does happen in every city and town in the United States. And But um, it happens and people go without answers. They. You know, they have to live with it the rest of their lives. They have no closure. They have no peace about it, really, because what should have happened did not happen. I mean, my heart goes out to John's family because they've been through so much. Thanks to John's mother and his family for sharing their story with us. My purpose in all of this is to help raise awareness for victims' families and give them a safe space to tell their stories. Thank you for listening, as always. That concludes our first season of Crossing the Line. Wow. We made it. (laughs) We made it. But don't worry, we have many more episodes to come. I'm going to be covering missing persons, suspicious death cases on Crossing the Line from time to time when I feel I can make a difference by bringing attention to the case, especially if I feel there has been an injustice. So if you have any information in any of the cases covered on this show, send me an email. It can be totally anonymous if you desire. We will see you soon. I promise you that. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. 
Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.